This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. In this month's programme, we get the latest on the COVID-19 crisis from IFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown. We'll be talking about the response of government, the response of farmers and the response of IFAD. Coming up, we have news from Laos from our reporter, Julia Gimaraj, where we hear about farmer nutrition schools. Also, Freddie Harvey has a report on getting the youth element right in development. Then we talk to a leading light of the agro-ecological movement in Italy, Marco Minceroni. Some great insights there into sustainable farming. Plus, lights, camera, action. We hear from IFAD's director for the Near East, North Africa and Europe about her recent move into the movie business. Then we have the final part of our short series on Meet the Experts, this time with Matteo Galetti on Indigenous Peoples. And we'll be joining up with IFAD's Recipe for Change chef Carlo Craco, this time on top of a Himalayan foothill in Bhutan. Wrapping up, we have our newest Recipes for Change chef, Leo. She'll be talking to us from Colombia. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. It's been almost a year since we first started to hear about COVID-19 and we're still dealing with the impacts of the disease to human health and the wider economy. IFAD's working hard to build resilience towards the pandemic in its projects with smallholder farmers in developing countries. To find out how that's been going, I caught up with IFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown, and asked him about IFAD's operational response. We have three main areas uh, in terms of our response. The repurposing of funding within existing projects, the rural poor stimulus facility that we launched, and also our work on policy and analytical support to countries to ensure we get the responses right. So in all three areas, I think we're progressing well, but the demands are enormous. Um, We can't service them. And the situation does change every day, as we see in terms of how COVID is playing out, particularly um, in developing countries. So in terms of repurposing, we've repurposed nearly $200 million in about 58 countries and 88 projects. So a significant amount of repurposing of funding to the the priority responses needed for COVID. The majority of these are to to provide inputs. The majority of funding has gone to provide inputs to farmers, be they vaccines, seed. This is critical because it's time critical. We have to ensure that farmers have the seed and the inputs to make the most of planting seasons, when the rains come. So that's the main area, really, which we focused on that. Under the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility, EFAD put in initially 40 million. We have raised about another 20 million, and we have uh, about another 20 or 30 million that we hope to announce in the next few weeks. 
So of EFAD's 40 million we put in, the majority of this has been, been designed and approved. And by the end of this month, I expect the 40 million to be utilized. So that's gone to about 50 proposals across about 45 countries. Uh, and the majority of that has gone to low income countries. Again, the demand from countries themselves has been for mainly for emergency inputs, but also on financial services, but a lot of interest on digital solutions, digital platforms. In other words, how do we get information to farmers quickly through use of, of digital? Um, what, what I would say on the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility is it responds very much to what countries have been asking for, and it's done very much in partnership with the UN country teams. We, 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 we look to complement the overall UN approaching country, not to duplicate it. So these projects are often done with other Rome-based agencies and are often and, and, are, and are part of the whole UN country team response. And then just lastly, and equally important, is our policy and analytical support. We've funded nearly 27 studies in, 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 in a similar amount of countries. You know, very, very practical studies with small amounts of money to understand a, a challenge or an issue and try and unblock it. And, and, and that's been very complementary to the first two aspects of our COVID response, the rural poor stimulus facility and the repurposing of funds. How would you characterise IFAD's unique role in this situation? I think we do have a unique but complementary role here. Unique in terms that IFAD is the only uh, organisation, international organisation, focused on the impact of COVID on the poorest uh, and the rural poorest. So we bring something specific in terms of our expertise and knowledge on the challenges uh, to the rural poorest as part of an overall international response, uh, both complementing the wider UN role, but also other organisations. And we have significant long-term partnerships with particular parts of uh, civil society, indigenous peoples, farmer organisations. So we can also utilise the knowledge and expertise in those relationships as part of the response that others can't do. Um, but also important is not just uh, the physical response through our, our, our provision of um, inputs, etc. But because we are very, very connected to the ground, we're also able to use the knowledge coming out of projects and beneficiaries, often in some of the most remote areas, and feed that back into the policy responses and the needs that governments to ensure that the rural uh, needs are most um, responded to. Uh, and then lastly, I would say that part of our unique role is to try and make this an opportunity as well. Um, and, and some of our, our beneficiaries, the, the rural poor, are the least, uh, have, uh, traditionally are the least served by traditional forms of extension and information from government and others. These have totally broken down in many places due to COVID. So there's a real opportunity here for us to transform the way the rural poor get information and services 
as part of the COVID response by particularly focusing on transformative uh, digital approaches as part of COVID, which are very, very important to our, to, to our target group who traditionally have not got the information they needed anyway. So I would say that would be a sort of unique but complementary role of, of EFAD in the overall response. That was Donald Brown, IFAD's Associate Vice President. You're listening to Farms Food Future. And next, we have news from Southeast Asia. This is Farms Food Future. And there's some exciting news straight from Laos, where the Agriculture for Nutrition program is hard at work collaborating with local communities to increase food security and nutrition levels. Our reporter, Julia Gimaraj, spoke to two of the project representatives about one of the most important parts of this project, the Farmer Nutrition Schools. Undernutrition and food insecurity pose a serious threat to the population of Laos, especially women and children. In some provinces, stunting rates in infants under 5 years of age go as high as 61%. The IFAD-supported Agriculture for Nutrition program has been working with communities in the uplands of Laos to change this scenario. An essential part of this project relies on education about the importance of agriculture for nutrition and food security. To achieve this goal, farmer nutrition schools were established in all 400 villages involved with the project. These learning centers improve household diets by strengthening women's knowledge on agriculture and enhancing their ability to cultivate and preserve nutritious foods in their homes. But why women? Because targeting women's nutrition is key to breaking the intergenerational cycle of undernutrition in Laos. The project is financed by the Global Agriculture and Food Security Program and supervised by IFAD and the World Food Program. I spoke to Ritik Yashi, project representative, about this initiative. He told me that the farmer nutrition schools have a set of four learning modules delivered to the village participants. The first module is called the basic nutrition knowledge. The second module is called the problem analysis and food gaps. The third one is called knowledge on agriculture. The fourth one is the planning to get the garden grant which is a reward for completing the farm nutrition school. The garden grants serve as an incentive to conclude the farmer nutrition school's training, as well as a resource for participants to build their own home gardens. Each participant writes a grant proposal and is awarded with the equivalent of $120 to start their small agribusiness. I also spoke to Utai Sihalath from WFP about some of the activities that are carried out after each learning session. At the end of the day, women can also learn, learn what's the best practice in terms of the dietary diversity or growing vegetable or raising animal, and in terms of taking care of the health, health of the mothers or the child, health care. And, and at the end, they also do the cooking demonstration together and people learn together and then they share the food and then they eat together and also talking about the different practice in the different households, what have been doing so far. That's, that's the, the nature of the F&S. 
the cooking demonstrations that follow each session are also very popular among villagers according to ritik yashi after these uh, training sessions are over per se there are also facilitated by a cooking session where the village facilitators along with the support of some local women participants they cook nutritious food including all the nutritious uh, vegetables and uh, meats and dairy products that would have been included in the module itself show them how to cook the food much better and more nutritiously so that the family reaps much more benefit from the same food that they have been eating for decades mm. but in a better way so that is something that uh, is one of the usps of these trainings and say uh, trainings because the villagers they like it very much to understand how to cook food better Ritik also told me about the impact of the farmer nutrition schools on the villagers so far. Until today we have trained uh, about 21,899 participants. 19,423 have been women and to give you an insight from one of our uh, uh, villagers, one of our very uh, enthusiastic uh, ladies uh, in the name of Mrs. Uape, she's a 25 years old individual from uh, Hooker village she says that uh, and i quote by joining this activity i now know how to cook better more importantly i know what to cook until now we were eating enough but we were not eating right and now by eating right i can see the changes in my children and my family so far more than 12000 garden grants have been rewarded meaning that 12000 households can now cultivate consume and sell nutritious foods just like mrs yuapave ritik was also proud to share a great improvement in the household dietary diversity score of the region from 5.19 out of 12 the score went up to 9.36 meaning that the local population has significantly increased their intake of various nutritious foods the project will be finalized in 2022 utai shared with me some of the goals for these remaining 2 years so far we we have distributed uh, the garden grant to to too many many women so we need to ensure like once they get the grant they they can successfully implement the agriculture practice at home example like when they get the grant they need to to know how to to do the chicken raising they know how to grow good vegetable so until from now until the end they, it need to be sustained in terms of uh, gardening practice or, or animal raising practice so that at the end they have better results or better impact to the nutrition household nutrition Ritik also talked about some of the project expectations looking forward So the goal for this year for FNS is to encourage more people to join the FNS activity especially youth uh, also men caretakers adolescent girls and make sure all people in the community receive knowledge on nutrition and eventually adopting change in nutrition behavior more emphasis would be given to cooking demonstrations because as i mentioned earlier this is one of the most interesting part of the foundation school for the community also food processing and preservation post harvest will be a top agenda this year 
also importance would be given to the theory of uh, sustainability of fns when the project ends and we are currently trying to find ways on how to ensure the sustenance of fns through conducting discussions and putting more fns activities in the project nutrition strategy thank you to ritik yashi utai sihalath and all the farmer nutrition school staff to learn more about this project visit our latest page at ifad.org that was julia jimaraj reporting on the farmer nutrition schools in lao Coming up, we have a report on putting the youth back in the development. You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson. As the fallout from COVID-19 bites, focusing on youth is crucial for rural communities. The equivalent of 400 million full-time jobs have been lost worldwide and the pandemic could push a further 71 to 100 million people into extreme poverty. Rural communities are more susceptible to disruptions to supply chains and market access, which threatens them with increased poverty and food insecurity. So, focusing on youth is vital. The newly published Practitioner's Guide for Mainstreaming Youth in IFAD Operations seeks to address these realities. Freddie Harvey-Williams has this report. Of the world's 1.2 billion young people, 88% live in developing countries and more than half of them live in rural areas. While 67% of young people live in areas with great agricultural potential, only a third of them have access to the markets that would make agricultural job opportunities possible. IFAD is committed to ensuring that 50% of its new project designs and 100% of its country strategic opportunities programmes will be youth sensitive. But IFAD's support for rural youth goes far beyond ensuring that youth as a group is not left behind. Young women and men want decent work and are quick to take up new innovations and take risks. They are frustrated with their lack of access to land, services and skills. The Practitioner's Guide for Mainstreaming Youth in IFAD Operations shows that a prescriptive approach to youth engagement won't work. Youth are a highly diverse group with incredible variation in terms of gender, age, ethnicity, cultural specificities, educational levels, employment status, skills and capacities. This new guide presents IFAD's approach to youth-sensitive development by outlining a framework with examples and principles for youth engagement, with signposts to a rich body of pre-existing experience and knowledge. Ultimately, the guide provides a valuable directory for information for IFAD staff and partners. However, IFAD also recognises that youth-sensitive project design is enriched by actual engagement and direct consultation with young people, their organisations, governments and partners, and by adapting projects to local contexts. Thanks to Freddie for that report and the Practitioner's Guide, which covers IFAD's country strategies, project design and implementation, supervision and support, and it can be downloaded at ifad.org. Coming up, I'm heading off to meet one of the leading lights of the agroecological world in Italian farming. Marco Mincheroni took over his farm just over 20 years ago from his dad. And since the beginning, he's been a champion for organic farming methods. Nestled in the Umbrian countryside, Castello di Montalero borders on one side the lake of Trasimeno. The farm produces a wide variety of organic products while also creating biodiversity corridors. Marco's farm is a great example of how sustainable agriculture can work when implemented in the right way. 
and he's keen to share his knowledge with others. With that in mind, we headed north of Rome to find out more. Originally a student of philosophy, he also brings that approach to his work on the farm. You you were influenced, as I understand, by the now late uh, Giulia Maria Crespi. What were the fundamentals of of her farming philosophy that you have taken forward? Giulia Maria Crespi was the founder of the Italian Biodynamic Association here in Italy. So she she, she founded FAI, uh, and she founded the Italian Biodynamic Association. So she, Clearly, she had a biodynamic approach uh, following Rudolf Steiner. At their family's property called Cascino Orsina near Milan, uh, they hold courses on, on all these themes and, and they produce excellent uh, biodynamic rice. But, uh, so from her, I, I think I gained this, this holistic approach to, to farming and this, this uh, encouragement to, to, to carry on the way I was, I was going. How does biodynamics take you forward from organic, it's it's a step ahead. Actually, the, the kind of farming I do, I would define it agroecological. So I, I take bits and pieces from various techniques, various organic techniques. Uh, one of these is biodynamics, and and I apply them, I experiment and apply them to to, to obtain the best uh, the best result. Um, so basically, from the way we were doing farming here, which was industrial farming. So using synthetic, synthetic uh, fertilizer, pesticides, herbicides, you know, and, and heavy tilling, uh, monocultures, you know. And this needed high inputs, high resources, expensive seeds, expensive products, you know. I, I, moved, I moved from organic farming, straightforward organic farming, uh, as it was uh, uh, ruled by European community 20 years ago. Uh, so basically no use of industrial synthetic products, no use of GMOs. Uh, chemical products are basically forbidden or extremely limited. Uh, use of crop rotation, natural fertilizers. And then I, 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 in the past years, I moved to a more complex way of doing organic farming, which I would call agroecologic farming, which is uh, diversified. Uh, I, I'm trying to have a more resilient and more circular approach. So minimum disturbance of soil, Minimum tillage, you know, I, I till when it's really necessary. We used to go down 40 centimeters, 50 centimeters. Now I go maximum 10, 25 centimeters down because the richness is, is, is in the upper part of the, of the soil. Our, our, our treasure is there, you know. Limited use of modern varieties of seeds. Of course, a modern variety of seed expresses its best in, in uh, industrial systems. You know, that's what they've been selected for, you know. Instead, in an organic system, it doesn't work as well. So I prefer traditional varieties of cereals, for example. Uh, they have higher stems, maybe one meter, one and a half meters tall. So they're not in competition with the weeds. They have maybe longer beards or bristles, so for protection. Their heads are more open, there's more airflow, they're less susceptible to, to fungi, to, 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 to humidity. Uh, they do have lower yields, but you have far less inputs, far less expenses. You can compensate the lower yield using diversity and planting more crops together in an agricultural approach, you know. Uh, and in the year, the yields improve as you understand better what you're doing, you know. Driving around the farm with you just now and looking out here from your home on high over the land you you see these stripes within the fields can you tell me a little bit more about the the theory of why you plant in that way within the fields these various stripes of so what i realized uh, as i was i was applying and doing organic farming 
is that biodiversity is really uh, your insurance, your protection. And a special, a new species, maybe an aggressive one, arrives and starts eating everything everywhere, nothing stopping it except maybe for pesticides, but I'm organic and I don't use them. So instead, with a high biodiversity, there are other insects occupying spaces and they don't want to leave these guys, you know. There are the natural predators, which are insects like ladybugs, which eat aphids, or spiders, which eat basically every other insect. Mantis, you know, the praying mantis. Also, you have more birds, more bats. So this keeps the overall aggressive population down. And uh, So higher diversity means higher protection. Uh, there's more competition between insects. So some may eat a bit of your crops, but there isn't a big impact overall. And also having many bees increases yield, increases pollination. So insects are, the presence of insects is very important for, for agriculture. Did, did you meet with, I mean, these are big changes to the way you farm this land. Did you meet with any resistance to these changes within the local community, within the, the, the market value chain that you're trying to sell into? First of all, I, I studied philosophy, so I, I, I don't come from a farming background. And kind of started following the properties. I, I, I planted alpha alpha everywhere, of which was one step to go in the right direction. And I started reading as much as I could, and I started uh, experimenting. Um, of course, uh, local farmers were making a bit fun of me, you know. I, and I did do my mistakes. I did do my mistakes, of course, and that's how you learn, you know. Uh, but in the long run, I'm very happy with all my choices. Walking around the farm, it was clear that Marco's personal philosophy is fundamentally to respect nature. He says we need to listen to the land to see what indicator plants are growing and what these tell you about what the soil needs. It's also really based on common sense. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Plan for the future because bad seasons do happen and be ready to adapt to the land and the weather. Marco told me more about the importance of biodiversity as part of his farm. So to attract uh, varieties of animals, uh, all, you know, bear in mind, they're all in relative competition with each other, you know. You need many different types of plants and crops. So a, hand, a, high, a high plant biodiversity is, is needed to create like a better equilibrium. Uh, very inspiring has been meeting and reading books of Miguel Altieri. Um, through him, I understood so much about uh, agroecology. So now we we have stripes of of, of plants uh, and, and and pollen attracting you know plants. They, they attract bees uh, around the property, uh, always to give a, a place for the animals and, and the insects to stay, especially when we're turning over the land when we're working the land, and. Um, so you can have your stock of, of beetles and your stock of bees, and you must protect it. That's that's important. And you know you. And, and looking out from from up here, um, you can see how the, the land changes as it goes down to the lakeside. The idea is that eventually these corridors will all connect. From uh, absolutely well, um, one of the lucky features is that I have at, at north this very large national park called Lago Trasimeno, which is a, which is a, a lake full of biodiversity. Right on the shores of it, our properties start. Uh, in the heart of the property, there is the more hilly and, and, and wooden, woody side, I would say, part of it. So there's more natural biodiversity. But, but on the plains, everything has been oversimplified 
by the kind of farming which has been done in the 80s and the 70s. So I'm really trying to recreate uh, corridors of hedges and bushes, and I have a project of planting 15 kilometers of, of trees and bushes to connect the park with the inner uh, parts of the property, uh, so, so to let the animals move around and to create uh, like different air currents, you know, and somewhere for the insects to stay. Many species have returned to the land. First the insects, then came the hedgehogs, after that foxes, hares, roe deer and wild boars in larger numbers. Plus skywards, there are hawks and even eagles. And last but not least to arrive have been the wolves. So what lessons has Marco learnt that could be transferable to smallholder farmers in developing countries? I think it's very important to retake control over your local varieties of seeds, you know. Breed, grow your own seeds instead of, of buying them. Uh, possibly they're more adapted to your own land, uh, to your own territory. Um, and this also gets you out of the commodities market. So, you know, if, if you have your own seed and, you know, your price is not susceptible to changes according to the market, which is global. I, I, I would minimize expenses and external inputs. Uh, so traditional methods of growing, keep your seeds, uh, local heritage is extremely valuable. Resilience, I mean, go for resilience. Local varieties are better. Uh, the, the wonderful solution would be using evolutive populations. I, I know also you're supporting one of these programs with, with Salvatore Ciccarelli, a professor in, in evolutive farming. Uh, these populations uh, made of maybe thousands of varieties of the same family of seeds, but, you know, they're different among them. They, 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 they interbreed in the, same, in the same plot of land and they, they, and they evolve according to the, to the, the, the place they're grown in. So diversification, you know, agroecological principles, maybe intercropping. There are interesting techniques like the push-pull method for insects, you know, planting certain things to attract the good ones and to repel the, the bad ones or to keep the animals outside. You know, cultivating biodiversity is, is very important. Uh, also for nutrition, you know, a more diversified uh, cultivation gives you diversified food. Thanks to Marco Minciaroni from Castello di Montalera. And we'll have that interview in full on the IFAD website. Coming up, news from IFAD's Near East, North Africa and Europe Division Director, Dina Saleh. And we find out what she's been up to in Sicily. Back in the summer, IFAD's Near East, North Africa and Europe Division, or NEN, was one of the sponsors of the Sicily Farm Film Festival. This meant that many of IFAD's films from that region were shown to the crowds in Agrigento. It also meant that the issues facing farmers across the Mediterranean, around climate change, migration and food security, were top of the agenda. Dina Saleh is the director of NEN and she told me more. The uniqueness of this festival is really what is close to IFAD's essence, which is really going the extra mile and reaching the very poorest part of the society. But also for us, we are an organization, IFAD, that deals with the most marginal and the less, let's say, the, the smaller uh, parts of society. And this festival is actually 
doing that is actually giving visibility to those people who are normally not in the mainstream, who are normally not in the, who are not visible. So I think there we see a very strong connection between IFAD's role and mandate, where we reach the most uh, poorest people of society, and the festival, which is also reaching those people who are normally not given the visibility and the spotlight. Also, the, the region you represent, the region you're working for, the Near East, North Africa and Europe division, covers the Mediterranean. So, I mean, are there parallels in some of the issues that, um, that you deal with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at, the, first of all, most of the region is within the Mediterranean region. So, so therefore, you know, the, if you look at it in terms of the agriculture systems, they're very similar. If you look at the rural communities and the way their their practices and their cultures are very similar, of course, um, this region is characterized uh, very much by um, an issue with climate change. This is the biggest, I think, challenge that that we have to confront uh, in this region. Um, water scarcity is huge also compounded by the fact that we are dealing with also, in some cases, uh, we've had uh, to deal with locust invasions. In some other cases, we've also had to deal with, you know, we have the highest, I would say, percentage of youth unemployment. And this is a region, sorry, that is also highly dependent on food imports because of the you know, the, the, the water scarcity because of drought, because of different uh, challenges of related to climate. But then we also have, that has been compounded now by this global pandemic, the COVID-19, and that has added its own dimension to the problem, I would say. The disruption that has occurred in terms of food production, that has occurred in terms of labor, because of course with the restrictions and the lockdown, Labour has, has also been, um, in a way, curbed because of the situation. People cannot move, uh, workers cannot go to the field. Um, there's also been an issue where, um, of course, trade barriers and trade restrictions and, and regional trade, you know, the traditional trade routes have been disrupted. So, so how does IFAD help these communities be better prepared when crises hit? What we're trying to do here is to to support farmers first, to have a strong um, foundation, which is a strong infrastructure. So availability of water, all that they need for the production system. So availability of water, being able to access markets through better infrastructure of roads, uh, better input supplies, so the quality of production is, 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 is also uh, assured, but also it's, it's resilient and can cope with the shocks of climate and all. But at the same time, what we do is support communities through training and capacity building and awareness of how important their role is and, and what they can do better and how they can also realize that the wealth of the asset that they have, which is their land and also the production and their role that they, you know, that they play in, in feeding the world. Um, because smallholder farmers are the majority of, of um, I would say, the, the, the food production system. You know, 80% of the 500 million small farms in the world are owned by small farmers. So they need to understand their worth in all of that. 
And so we do a mix of, of several things. We build infrastructure. We provide opportunities for access to, to either financing, access to markets, access to input supplies. And at the same time, we also help farmers with, with training, with new technologies, with solutions, with um, you know, how to work together, uh, because also aggregation is a very important uh, element in all of this. That they, if they produce together and they produce more and they produce better quality, then they have better opportunities. Thanks to Dina, and for more information on the Sicily Farm Film Festival, go to sicilyfarmoneword.it. Dina will be back later in the programme to talk about young people and how things are done differently in the Near East, North Africa and Europe division. But before that, we have the final part of our Meet the Expert series. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Now we have the third in our mini-series where you get a quick introduction to our experts. Today's the turn of IFAD's lead technical specialist on indigenous peoples and tribal affairs, Mattia Praia Galetti. He tells us a little bit about what he does. We have 470 million indigenous peoples around the world in about 90 countries. Altogether, they comprise 6% of the world population. However, the incidence of poverty among them is very high because they represent 18% of the world poor. But in addition, if we consider that these indigenous peoples are uh, responsible as a custodian of 80% of the world biodiversity, so we will not be able to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals if we are not uh, there to support uh, what indigenous peoples are doing. In the Amazon regions where indigenous peoples live, there is almost no deforestation. So what they do is also on behalf of the world community, because biodiversity is a, is a global good. At the same time, instead of recognizing and respecting the work they are doing, very often indigenous peoples are marginalized, if not criminalized. And the indigenous peoples very often are, uh, are not considered by governments as important uh, actors. It's effort empowering indigenous peoples to engage in a dialogue. We are able to identify lessons that uh, eventually will be useful to enable and empower indigenous peoples to engage with governments in a dialogue which is going to identify the real bottlenecks. Very often the bottlenecks are at the policy level, a bottlenecks in terms of access to land, access to natural resources, access to financial services. At the moment we have 62 ongoing projects for a total investment of $670 million, which is by far the largest investment by any financing institution on indigenous peoples, reaching out uh, an estimated uh, 5.7 million indigenous peoples. And this portfolio is basically a golden mine. Every two years, we have an annual meeting at IFAT, which is scheduled always in conjunction with our governing council which gives the opportunity to the indigenous peoples' organizations and the delegates nominated in uh, regional meetings in advance to come up with recommendations uh, addressed to IFAD and to governments. And this is done on purpose to allow indigenous peoples to read the conclusion of the forum in front of our member states. In New York, uh, this is one thing that makes me proud, listening to indigenous peoples telling to the 
General Assembly in front of all um, delegations of member countries referring to IFAD as a model organization for the way it, it's working with indigenous peoples. This is a difficult area. This is remote community. Only IFAD is the organization willing to take the risk to finance this kind of project. That was the lead technical specialist on indigenous peoples, Mattia Briard Galetti. Meanwhile, you can find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. And you can also find more podcasts at the same address, forward slash podcasts. Please go to episode two for news on climate change across the world, in episode seven for the latest on nutrition, and in episode 11 for some great reports from across South America. All that and lots more in Farms Food Future. But back to this edition, and coming up, we have more from Dina Saleh. Dina Saleh is the director of IFAD's Near East, North Africa and Europe division. In the second part of her interview, she explained how they do it differently in her region of the world. But first, she told me what's being done to deal with the high rates of youth unemployment. If you look at it, about 30% of our youth are unemployed in this region. Um, just along with COVID, we're expecting an additional 1.7 million jobs to be lost, if not 2 million jobs. And this is mainly, we're looking at the youth. Uh, so for us, the young people play a very important role. So what IFAD tries to do here is to create tailor-made solutions for the youth, where we, we, we offer them opportunities either to start up businesses, so, which are linked to agriculture, of course, um, we give them training, we, we give them, um, sometimes we, we even offer them uh, grants to do, you know, to purchase small equipments or to, if they would like to start up a business that is um, related to, 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 to the farm production, uh, we can even give them grants to purchase equipment, to purchase um, and different uh, solutions. Uh, most of them are interested in digitalization, and, and this is, you know, uh, this is really the new wave. And therefore, technology is very important. And uh, and we do also offer them trading opportunities. We offer them solutions and give them also packages to be able to set up businesses that are linked to, to digital solutions. Yeah. IFAD is is a large organisation which has a global reach, but you know it's also based on many thousands of small communities where we work and you work with a group of those across the, the NEN region. How would you say NEN does it differently from the rest? What sets you apart? Well, NEN is a very heterogeneous uh, region if you, from Morocco to Kyrgyzstan. So you can see that. Um, and it's, it's a region that is unfortunately marked by, with a lot of challenges. So apart from the climate challenges, we have also conflict. We have, um, you know, as I said before, high unemployment. Um, so we have a number of, of, of issues to deal with. And therefore, this calls upon NEN to be extremely flexible and adaptable. To, to the different situations. So how we do it differently is that, one, um, we have to take into account, of course, the cultural norms and the practices, because they're very different. As I mentioned, the, the geographic coverage is huge. Um, so different places need a different uh, 
tailor-made solution. Secondly, we are um, in and we create uh, projects which um, allow us to respond when situations happen. Uh, therefore, we do create space for us to adapt very quickly when there are evolving situations. So, um, we all, because unfortunately we've worked in fragile situations, most of the countries, 33% are fragile in the NEN region. So this already adds an, an additional burden on, on how we, we work. So we look for really resilient infrastructure. And when I say resilient, it's not to say um, they cannot break, but to say that we are, we, when we put in place, for example, water systems, we make sure that they're very small scale, they're owned by the communities, the communities know how to operate, how to fix them if they're broken down, so not relying on external help, because in these fragile situations they have to be really locally made and locally uh, owned and maintained. So those are the type of things where we do really a lot of custom fitting and um, flexibility that is required and adaptability to the situation, which sets us apart, I think. Thanks to Dina and for more information on IFAD's work across the Near East, North Africa and Europe, please go to the IFAD website. Coming up, we hear from Chef Carlo Craco in Bhutan. This is Farms Food Future. IFAD's Recipes for Change series takes top chefs to visit IFAD projects and cook with the householders. Together, they look at some of the impacts of climate change on crucial crops and ingredients. But they also get to see some of the solutions put in place with IFAD's support so that farmers can build that all-important resilience. In the final of three reports, Sam Cole was with Italian celebrity chef Carlo Craco in Bhutan. He has this report. With over 70% of its forests still intact, the Kingdom of Bhutan prides itself on being the only carbon-negative country in the world. But lying in the foothills of the Himalayas between China and India, Bhutan is on the front line of climate change. And for farmers here, the unpredictable weather has become a challenge. To see how a changing climate is also changing the way they grow their food, Carlo Craco, an Italian chef and TV celebrity, is in Bhutan. The main problems they have are due to climate change. These short but very intense rainfalls, the river swelling up and flushing away all their rice. When before there was a valley of rice, now they can't cultivate anything. When flash floods washed away her paddy fields, local farmer Tutu Mangmo lost all her income and was forced to abandon her land near the river and build terraces on higher ground. Through a government project funded by IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, farmers have been encouraged to switch back to indigenous crops, which cope better in drought and heavy rain. One of these crops is a local variety of pepper that Tutan is now growing. It is used to make emadachi, Bhutan's national dish. This is the Urka Bangla pepper. This is the original pepper to make emadachi, which is this exceptionally good sauce. We are trying to revive those indigenous crops through strengthening of the traditional seed systems 
and uh, enhancing the on-farm diversity to ensure that the crops they cultivate are not only climate resilient but also meet the socio-economic needs of the people. Finger millet is another climate resilient crop that Tukting is now growing, which also brings in a good income. She likes this variety as it is more nutritious and versatile than other cereals. I prefer millet over rice or other crops because this finger millet has multiple uses. We can make dough, porridge, use it to brew alcohol and as fodder for cattle. This dough is for their second dish, millet momos, or stuffed dumplings, filled with fresh ingredients from Tutun's vegetable garden. Wow. Wow, this is a marrow. It's beautiful. Look, there is everything. Tutun does not use chemicals or pesticides, but only natural processes that enrich soils and promote biodiversity. Healthy soils produce more resilient crops. They retain moisture better and resist erosion. They also help reverse climate change by absorbing and storing large amounts of CO2. They try to use the land in a positive, good and a healthy way. But they also vary their ingredients, so they always have something to fall back on. We have melted some butter. Here we have cabbage, coriander, spring onion and green pepper. Then we add some cheese. They always attempt to live in symbiosis with what is around them, always trying to adapt to nature, looking for some kind of circularity. And this is very beautiful. I will take it back with me. By adapting to nature and restoring their natural ecosystems, 28,000 Bhutanese farmers like Tukten are not only growing more resilient crops, but are also helping to reduce the harmful emissions which cause climate change. Thanks to Sam Cole for that report with Italian chef Carlo Cracco here on Farms Food Future. Coming up, our final story for this edition, we head off to Colombia. This is Farms Food Future. What is the potential role of gastronomy in raising public awareness about the impact of climate change on rural communities and smallholder producers? In today's episode, we welcome a new chef from Colombia, Leonor Espinosa. She's joining IFAD's Recipes for Change campaign. Through her recipes, she tells the story of the Colombian people from an innovative point of view. Chef Leonor spoke to our reporter, Caroline Silao, and talked about her vision of the culinary world and the work she's doing with her foundation, Fun Leo, dedicated to strengthening the gastronomic traditions of indigenous communities based on their biological and cultural heritage. I dedicated my life to being a chef, a chef that is able to tell stories. For me, the visual arts, economics and advertising are intrinsically related to my work. I believe that gastronomy should be connected to other disciplines to generate positive impacts through its creative process. So, I'm a chef, a political chef, a social chef, a chef who captures stories on the plate. Let's say then that I am a visual artist whose emphasis and specialty 
is to make something more out of my cuisine. Leo's menu is based on making territories visible, I mean indigenous territories, Afro-territories. And to do this, we start with the costumes and historical memory of the communities in these biocultural regions. And the idea is to tell the story of Colombia through the story of our Colombian cuisine. But in addition, the story can also transmit other meanings and other messages. The beauty of this whole experience is that we can tell a positive story rather than a negative one by showing the richness of these communities. That is why we use the term biocultural, which emphasizes that their biological and cultural wealth are totally interrelated. Fan Leo works hand-in-hand with indigenous and Afro-communities. Our mission today is to reclaim, identify, and enhance these communities' gastronomic traditions based on their biological heritage, their cultural heritage, their intangible heritage, which always promotes not just its well-being, but also health and nutrition. We believe that there is a great potential to improve the conditions in these communities by transforming those traditions into goods and services. Over the last 12 years, we have carried out many projects in these communities. These projects put into practice the Foundation's work, including training and empowering promoters of culinary tradition safeguarding traditional flavors. We also support some communities on their culinary journey as for a way to boost their cultural identity and develop local tourism. We also help them design good agricultural and fishing practices, promote certain key ingredients, and make these places more attractive as tourist destinations. We brought together all this knowledge and all these innovations in a new project called SOTEA, based in Coquí, an Afro-descendant community with the potential for tourism thanks to the arrival of whales, which happens once a year. It also has potential to be a biodiversity hotspot because rivers, mangroves and sea surround it. But perhaps its most valuable resource is the fact that the women who live there already knew about the importance of gastronomy as a way to promote their community. At the moment, we're working hand-in-hand hand with the Vice President of the Republic to create a comprehensive center of gastronomy in Cali that, of course, will have other components from the government's vision. We're also running a project together with some subsidiaries of the state oil company. But now, due to the pandemic, it is on hold because it is impossible to travel. Right now, Colombia is disconnected from its communities due to the pandemic. While it has always been very difficult to reach some territories where land or air transportation is complex, it is even more complicated now. But we're working on it. The gastronomic and the culinary world is changing. All these processes, all these campaigns that are really seeking to raise awareness of the impacts of climate change on rural communities, on small-scale producers, through local organizations, through traditional recipes that are threatened by all of those negative effects we're experiencing. I believe it is responsibility of chefs to have a social consciousness beyond the kitchen, because today, cooking is an act of transformation. So I became 
interested in becoming part of this movement to convey to other chefs who have not yet joined that the change is there, the transformation is there, it is happening, and that we chefs can be the agents of the change, perhaps the most important agents today with the power to generate that consciousness among others. Thanks to our reporter, Carolyn Stilau, and to Chef Leonor for joining us today. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, our reporters, Julia Gimaraj, Freddie Harvey-Williams, Carolyn Stilau, and Rosie Gonzalez, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. Rosie Gonzalez will be stepping into the presenter's chair and she'll be back at the end of November with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson, and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.